This is Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Hello and welcome to Civilly Speaking, OAJ's monthly podcast on practical and timely legal issues. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Our guest today is Columbus attorney Dave Meyer with the firm of Meyer Wilson. And our topic today is stockbroker malpractice claims. Dave, welcome to Silly Speaking. Thank you. Tell us, when a new client walks into your office, what's a, what's a typical client look like? The most typical client that calls our office is somebody who is between the ages of 55 and 75. They've worked for 30, 40 years to save a substantial amount of money to, with hopes to retire and live off that money. And they've trusted a financial advisor or stockbroker to recommend and implement a strategy of investment that would be appropriate for them. And something has gone wrong, which would trigger their call to me, either they've lost a substantial amount of money or they're surprised by something they see on their statement and they have a concern that those losses may be caused by something that the broker did wrong. And that's usually what triggers the call to me. And the big problem in this area of the law is for people to even recognize that they might have a potential claim. And the analogy I use is if you're sitting at a red light in your car and someone rear ends you, I don't do personal injury work, but I suspect that that's a pretty good case on liability. So that person knows, and they've been educated through a lot of good work of trial lawyers over the years, that that as long as they've sustained injury or damage, they likely have a claim to pursue. Well, people as investors lose money in the market for a lot of different reasons. And of course, brokers are not insurers of the market. So people lose money a lot of times for as a result of no misconduct, but a lot of times they lose money as a result of misconduct and people don't know. And I believe, and I've, I've heard this in our world that 80 to 90% of the investors out there, people like me and you and our parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles that who have a potential claim never even pursue it. Uh, maybe they don't recognize that what's happened in their account is the result of misconduct or they're embarrassed. A lot of people take personal finance, financial issues personally and they're embarrassed. So you know, there's a, there's a lot of hesitation to even bring these issues up. Most of the case, the people that call us, call us because their trusted advisor in another area has recommended they pursue uh, legal representation. Maybe it's their family lawyer or their state planning lawyer or their business lawyer, and it might be their accountant. A lot of these losses are exposed on tax forms, and a lot of accountants say, hey, you know, I see a lot of these kind of investments, and I think there's a potential problem you should call somebody. Oftentimes, and this may surprise many people, it's their new financial advisor. When somebody loses money or is unhappy, or there might be a change in family circumstances, they call another advisor, and another advisor looks at it and says, holy crap, this is crazy, you need to do something about that. So those are usually the trigger points. And, and you mentioned that there's a difference between some misconduct on behalf of the advisor and a bad result. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to, you mentioned that a couple categories of whether it be a broker or a financial advisor, and I gather that those are terms of art that, that matter. So that one of the first things, there's two or three things that as a lawyer considering 
accepting a case of investment fraud, there's a few things you need to do immediately. And the first question, I mean, I have three or four questions I ask immediately within the first 15 or 20 minutes of an initial intake. But the first question is you need to understand who the person is working with. Not only, of course, their, their name and where they are, but there are several dips, different types of stockbrokers, financial advisors, a lot of different names. A lot of them are legitimate. A lot of them are not legitimate. So you've got to break through that cloud and figure out what type of license does that person hold. And basically, it can be divided into two primary types. There's stockbrokers, people that I refer to as stockbrokers, and these are what's called technically a registered representative. They, are, they work for a broker-dealer or a brokerage firm. Thing, folks like work at Merrill Lynch, Wells Fargo, Raymond James, those are stockbrokers by their typical name, but their actual name is registered representatives. And then the other side of the coin, and these two make up the bulk, the bulk of, of the advisors, are registered investment advisors. These are independent advisors. They're regulated differently. The pursuit of claims against uh, both types are completely different. So you need to understand, first of all, who are they working with? Is it a registered representative of a brokerage firm or is it an independent advisor that is that is technically a registered investment advisory that works for an advisory firm? Because how you go about pursuing those claims is completely different. Tell us about that. How are they different? So if somebody calls, and probably 80% of the calls that we get on a typical week are clients of brokerage firms, what I call full-service brokerage firms, Merrill Lynch's, Wells Fargo, UBS, Raymond James. Um, so the first thing you do, say, the person says, I work with Jane Jones from Merrill Lynch, then we go online during the initial intake, and you can pull all this up on the internet. This can literally be done in 30 seconds. You can go to FINRA, which is a, an acronym for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. It's FINRA, F-I-N-R-A dot org. And you can do what's called broker check. So if you typed in Google FINRA broker check, it comes right up. And you type in the name and the location of the broker and their CRD report comes up. Central Record Depository. So the good thing about the financial services industry, as compared to any other type of professional service, be it doctors, lawyers, or accountants, Every registered representative, every broker in the United States who's registered with a brokerage firm has a public record available to you on your iPad, iPhone. And not only should you do this immediately as soon as you get a call, everybody should do this for their broker that they're working with and their parents uh, and, and any family or anyone you care about who's working with a broker because you pull it up. Now, it's not 100% accurate, and there's a lot of problems with it that lawyers like me that do what I do are, are trying to fix. But immediately on your iPad, if you're sitting in your living room or whatever, you can find the broker's employment history, disciplinary history, regulatory history, information about when they passed their, got their licenses. All of this is literally on the internet free. So the first thing I look at, where does the person work? If the broker works at a Merrill Lynch or a UBS or a Raymond James, then you know you have a viable defendant. Because, of course, in all of the plaintiff's work, the first question is, does the target defendant, are they collectible? So because we get probably 10 calls a week, Sean, from people who have invested and trusted their life savings with people who run away with it and they steal it, but there's, they don't work for a broker, they're not registered, and there's nothing we can do. Great case on liability. You know, there's no collectability like we all see in our 
plaintiff's practice. So we know if we look at it and they've been at Merrill Lynch for 10 years, that we know it doesn't say anything about the, the validity of the claim itself, but we know whether or not that firm is collectible. Because there are a lot of brokerage firms that we call independent brokerage firms that have very little or no money. You'd be amazed on how many brokerage firms are allowed to intake and invest people's life savings, but they have very little capital behind them. So people might say, oh, don't worry, Mr. Meyer. I know my broker is with a good firm. It's ABC Investments. And I might just know because of my experience where I'll look it up on the CRD. Then you can go online one more step to the SEC and figure out the act. You can see the finances of the company. So every brokerage firm has to file their finances. And there's something called net capital, which tells you how much money they have available to pay, among other things, claims that are pursued against them. So we can do all that in five minutes. And by the way, when you say paying claims, I take it there's no insurance here. So there's no requirement that brokers or brokerage firms have insurance trying to work on that because there are a lot of unpaid awards, You know, much like there probably is in a, in a variety of different plaintiff's practice. But there is no requirement for insurance. Now, a lot of the large firms, I keep talking about Merrill Lynch, and that, that doesn't mean that the brokers at the Merrill Lynch's the world are worse than anyone else. It's just a firm that everyone knows about. They're self-insured. They've got plenty of assets available. But there are a lot of firms. I mean, and a week doesn't go by where we get a potential client with a firm that we do not believe has the viability to pay a claim. So there is no insurance requirement. Now, some, some firms have insurance, but you often don't know that until you file the claim. And there's a lot of strategy involved to try to maximize the availability of the insurance. But figuring out who the person is licensed with and the viability of the underlying firm is the first thing you should do when in taking a potential claim. And it's also something you should do for your own family's well-being. Look at the broker that you're working with because you'll see if your broker has any complaints. And statistically, and this might not be precise, but I think less than 5 or 10% of the brokers have two or more complaints. So if you put, and these are complaints that are disclosed on the record. Now, there are ways where brokers get these records expunged, so it's not, it's not perfect. But compared to lawyers, I mean, if, if anyone at John wanted to look you up, they, they wouldn't know if you've had any complaints filed against you. They'll know maybe some, if you ever had an ethics complaint that's actually been determined by the Supreme Court, but the information is not nearly as available for lawyers and doctors and accountants. Now, I would say that's good because financial advisors literally have, for a lot of people, they have access to your entire life savings. So there's a reason that we dig deep into finding that information out. But that's the first step for brokers. Now, if somebody calls in and they work for a registered investment advisor, those are governed either by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the state regulators, depending on how many assets they have under management. And it matters because a lot of these firms are independent. They may not be affiliated with a large firm, so there may be collection issues. And the road to recovery, which we can talk about, is completely different. So there's completely parallel, distinct avenues of pursuit of recovery of claims depending on if it's a registered investment advisor on one hand or a registered representative at a broker's firm on the other. Well, speaking of the the path to resolving these claims, I gather there's going to be some paperwork and some documents along the way. What kinds of things are... uh, I know a lot of lawyers, when they hear financial stuff, their eyes kind of glaze over. Are there particular documents that you are looking at? So again, we're in this initial intake. We've gone online. We've confirmed that the broker 
with whom the client works is registered at a, at a large financial firm. We've confirmed that the dates where the client worked with the broker coincide with the employment. So then the issue is, you know, what, what's the value of the claim? And people will always have a number in their mind, hey, I think I lost a million dollars. And I get calls from lawyers that, that are considering referring a case to me, and they say, this is a great case, clients lost a million dollars. Well, that doesn't mean, that's one factor, of course. I mean, first of all, did they have 400 million to begin with, and, or did, that, did they lose everything they have? Uh, over what time period or what types of investments, there's obviously all kinds of questions. But the most important information I wanna see immediately is account statements. Now, not everyone keeps all their account statements, so that varies depending on the client. We want to see the, the account opening documents because when you, when all of us go start a relationship with a brokerage firm or an advisor, we, we fill out new account documents. And what's in those new account documents is very important. It has your name, your contact information, obviously, but also has your investment experience, your investment objectives, and a lot of other information that we as securities fraud lawyers want to look at. So if we can get copies of that and your statements, and sometimes people say, well, I've been with them for 15 years, and you know, we've got folks in our office that are reviewing years and years of statements. We try to do a, what we call an internal P&L, profit and loss, to figure out you know, how much money was actually invested, how much money was withdrawn, and then try to evaluate how much was lost so we can get a sense of you know, the value of the claim. So account statements and new account documents are the primary documents that we want to see initially. And I can imagine, Dave, that, that plenty of folks come in and again, get a bad result. They, the money was lost. That doesn't necessarily mean that there was any misconduct or malpractice. What kinds of issues or, or, or malfeasance are you looking for to make it a, a worthwhile case? So there's a variety of claims. I mean, obviously, the most egregious would be theft. So if a broker and you, and you think, well, no one's, that doesn't happen, it happens, unfortunately, uh, a lot. And we have a lot of theft claims in our office. So if the broker steals money, you know, so that's a that's I mean, on one end, takes it. theft, yeah, stealing money, theft, conversion. When a broker steals money, assuming it's a substantial amount of money, they're likely going to get caught and they're going to go to jail. And there's, so there's a there's usually a a parallel criminal case that you have to work through, you know, to also pursue the the civil side against the brokerage firm. And there and there's cases like unauthorized trading, churning, suitability. But the most typical claim, probably seventy percent. Sean, of what we see are, rec are recommendations of investments that are inappropriate for a particular individual or couple based on their life circumstances. Because there's a lot of standards in the industry. I mean, this is a whole different set of, of rules and regulations. It's, it's not something to be just dove in lightly. But generally, a requirement for a broker is to, at, at its base, is to recommend and implement an investment portfolio that's suitable and appropriate for the investor given their circumstance. When I, when, I mean, when I say circumstance, I mean age, investment experience, net worth, tax situation, health. And these factors are all in the, in the rules and regulations in the, in the securities industry. So, for example, if there's a 75-year-old couple who saved $300,000 after 40 years of work, all that money should not be invested in one aggressive stock. I mean, that would be an egregious example, but there's variations of that. So it's typically not as open and shut of a, of a theft. It's typically an investment strategy that's inappropriate for the investor based on their circumstance. 
And when you use words like reasonable, and, and what I hear you saying is that the, the broker used their judgment. I mean, is the, are these expert intensive cases? Is this a battle of the experts between what, what you know, one side saying this was perfectly reasonable and uh, they just don't like the outcome and the other disagree? There is different standards, negligence, fiduciary duty, uh, suitability. Yeah, there are different standards for different cases. But oftentimes at a hearing, and we'll talk about where these cases are actually heard, it is oftentimes a, an evaluation that the arbitrators, which are the folks that ultimately decide these cases, are going to evaluate whether or not the investment portfolio implemented by the advisor was appropriate, and they're going to likely hear from experts on, on both sides, yes. I, yeah, and you mentioned arbitrators. That's not juries. So, yeah, one of the things that a lot of people miss, and I probably get three calls a month from lawyers that said, hey, David, I took this case six months ago. I filed it in my local common pleas court, and now I'm six months later, and I've got an entry turning my case over to mandatory arbitration. What's this all about? So the, the first thing that lawyers need to know is that 99% of these claims do not go to court. When all of us go and we sign up with a brokerage firm, on the back of, of page six or seven or eight in small tiny print of the new account document is a mandatory arbitration provision. And ever since the Supreme Court in 1987 validated these mandatory arbitration clauses, every customer dispute against a brokerage firm goes through mandatory arbitration. And that arbitration is governed by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA. So FINRA is a pseudo-government agency. It's a, it's a self-regulated organization that's funded by the securities industry and operates under the authority of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And they have an enforcement division where they are basically the police force for the securities laws. And they also have an arbitration division where they administer the arbitration process. So essentially, I'm a securities arbitration lawyer that pursues investor claims in FINRA arbitration. And it's, a, it's, it's got its own rules. The first thing somebody should do if this is their first case is download the, the FINRA's arbitration procedure rules because there's rules from the time you file the case all the way through preparing the claim, discovery, hearings, the, the actual final hearing with the evidence and the, and the, and the decision and the, and the post-decision issues. It's, it's a completely different rules. It's like civil procedure all over again. The, the rules of evidence don't apply hard and fast. It's sort of like the wild, wild west. There's no depositions. The discovery is limited. There's no interrogatory. And so you're going to go into a hearing, but there's certain rules that there's, there's certain disclosure dates that have to be met. So if you don't follow the rules, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. But the final hearing, which is basically the trial, takes place without you having done any depositions. Uh, so the time that you cross-examine their experts could be the first time. Uh, now, luckily, if you do it a lot, you may have cross-examined that expert 10 other times. But it's, it's a lot different than, than court lawyers are surprised of the process, there's no depositions. And the arbitrator selection process is a lot different than jurors. The arbitrators are selected through a ranking process. Once you file the claim, both sides get a list of potential arbitrators, and then you're allowed to rank and strike a certain amount. And we keep at our office, we have files on all the arbitrators. So we have it's hundreds, if not thousands, of arbitrators around the country that we keep their, their prior decisions, their social media, their Facebook. You know, we do all that to try to, you know, we want to get the fairest 
arbitration panel as possible to, to hear our case. And by the way, who are those folks? So you could be an arbitrator. Anybody, should you should be. In fact, every trial lawyer should be an arbitrator. We don't need to be a lawyer. I'd love to get more teachers and more craftsmen. I mean, I'd like to see, I'd like to see the arbitration arbitrator pool in Ohio mirror more of the jury pool. And you, you go online to Fender and you fill out the application. It's not an easy application. I don't, well, I don't know what to say this, but you know, some people believe that it's intentionally difficult. It's gotten better and we've worked hard to improve that process. But you fill out an application, you get a couple references, and the only real requirement is you have to have five years of, quote, business experience. But that could be really anything. Certainly as lawyers, we would qualify you know, with, with college and law school and working. And then you, you take some training online and you take a test and you got to pay to do all this. But you do get paid and uh, you get paid an honorarium of, I don't know, I think it actually just changed to maybe five or $600 a session. There's two sessions a day, whatever it is. Uh, you get paid for the, comp- for the pre-hearing conferences. I mean, there, you do get paid. You're not going to get rich. But what I'd like to see is more diverse pool of arbitrators, because at the end of the day, the fairness of the arbitration process depends pretty much solely on the arbitrator pool. So I encourage everybody to get their spouses and their family and their adult children uh, who have some good life experiences to become arbitrators. And, and selecting and ranking and striking those arbitrators is much like Vordier. But you get to do it in your own office. You can, and you've got a couple of weeks to do it. And you know, those of us who do this all the time, we talk to each other about you know the potential issues with with arbitrators. But once they get assigned, they're there, and those are the ones that will decide all your pre-hearing issues. And ultimately, if the case doesn't settle prior to the final hearing, there'll be one of three arbitrators who will decide your case. And if it's a case is under a hundred thousand dollars, you can you can request one arbitrator. And the good news, there's actually a, an expedited process for claims under $50,000. You can do what's called on the papers. And we do this. You literally file the claim. You file the proper papers with FINRA. The fee is, is much less than on a, on a larger claim. And you don't even have a hearing. You, you file the paper. It's called a statement of claims akin to a complaint in a civil case. The respondent, which is the brokerage firm, gets served. They file a response. You may be able to file a reply. And then that's basically it. There's one arbitrator selected and they make a decision. Another thing that's much different, there's a lot of things different in FINRA arbitration than court, but the final decisions on the merits by the arbitrators is generally final and not appealable. The grounds to appeal a final decision is very small. You essentially, and it depends on the circuit, but you essentially Manifest disregard of the law, for example, is barely even enough these days. You almost have to prove fraud on behalf of the arbitrators. They're not required to apply the law strictly. In fact, they don't even have to be lawyers. Now, typically the chairperson, there's three arbitrators, typically the chairperson will be a lawyer generally, but they, they don't have to be. So, you know, you're in a hearing and you're doing objections and hearsay and a lot of these things no one even has heard of. So it's a, it's a pretty wild experience. But it's much quicker than court. I mean, there's a lot of benefits. I mean, I've, we've all been in court cases that take 10 years. The good news, when I tell people, and this is statistically confirmed on, on Fender's website, the average time it takes from the time someone calls me to the time their case is concluded is about 13 months. And, and I would say it's usually, in my experience, you know, 9 to 12 months. We've had a couple cases appealed, so that obviously takes a little bit longer. But... 
99% of the time, particularly if, you're, if your claim is against one of the larger brokerage firms, if they lose, they'll pay. And there's a great provision in Fender's code that if you get a decision against a brokerage firm, they must pay you within 30 days or you literally could shut the firm down. It's called an expedited suspension proceeding. So they, of course, they don't want that. So they're going to pay. So when you win a case, if it's against a, a viable firm that is interested in continuing to do business, you're going to get paid. Now, Dave, tell, tell us about registered investment advisors and how uh, those, are, are they governed by FINRA? So far, we've been talking about registered representatives, which we call generally stockbrokers, financial advisors. They're registered with a brokerage firm governed by FINRA, and that's where we pursue the FINRA arbitration process. On the other side of the coin, if there's registered investment advisors, they're not governed by FINRA. There's a lot of us that are trying to push FINRA to oversee the registered investment advisory business, but that hasn't happened yet. So right now they're governed by either the Securities and Exchange Commission or the state regulator, depending on how, what assets under management they have. Now in terms of a claim, if we get a call and the client is working with an RIA, a registered investment advisor, we can go online, it's a different system, but you can go online and get their, their uh, filing to, to determine how big they are, and if it's a small dinky eight outfit, you might have the same problem as if it's a small, tiny brokerage firm that doesn't have the ability to pay, and that's a problem. So we look and see who they're working with, who they're affiliated with. If it's a firm of substantial size, then we want to get the client agreement between the investor and the resident investment advisory firm, because that generally will dictate They'll have a, generally have an arbitration provision, a mandatory arbitration provision. It won't be FINRA because they're not governed by FINRA, but it'll typically, typically be AAA or JAMS, which is challenging because AAA arbitration is extremely expensive. Now, there is a consumer aspect to a consumer track, but in my experience, I've spent $70,000, $90,000 in fees in AAA arbitration. So the claim has to be substantial enough to justify those types of fees. JAMS has, a lot of people know JAMS as just mediate, mediators, but JAMS also has an arbitration forum and they have rules, arbitration rules as well. But again, it's just expensive. So on FINRA, the typical expenses that will be assessed by the arbitration panel at the, at the end might be between, in my experience, Five to twenty thousand dollars, and if you win, you hope that the FINRA arbitration panel assesses them against the adverse party. But a lot of cases that come to us, potential cases that come to us against registered investment advisories, we must decline simply because the expenses associated with pursuing a claim in either AAA or JAMS, you know, outweigh the potential recovery for the client. So my advice to anyone who's working with an RIA. And I personally have an account with a registered investment advisor. You know, this is a sensitive subject for me too. You know, if a registered investment advisory goes out of business and it's just a locally owned operation, you know, there's no big firm generally behind them to pay. Now, a lot of confusion, and this is a good point. So if you have an account with a registered investment advisory, they may set up actual accounts at Schwab or TD Ameritrade. And that, in those instances, in those cases where you have an, uh, in a relationship with a resident investment advisory, your accounts are set up through Schwab or TD. That firm, those brokerage firms in, in those cases are just, just working as a clearing firm. They're just, they're just moving paper and holding money. 
they don't owe, they argue they don't owe, the same duties to the customer as the RIA does. So people think, well, it's okay if my RIA does something bad. It says Charles Schwab right here, and my advisor's name is on the account. But that's an illusion a lot of the times. And people need to understand that they may not get the same protection than if they were to go directly to Charles Schwab and have an account. Because you can be an introducing broker or be a clearing firm. And if you're an introducing broker, that's the, the firm that has the relationship and the heightened duties with the client. And those often differ with the clearing firm. And clearing firm liability is very challenging. And the typical case comes in if someone calls, the registered investment advisory firm has gone out of business. And then we have to evaluate pursuing a claim against a clearing firm, and it's challenging at times. Sounds tougher. Tougher. Dave Meyer, thanks very much for joining My pleasure. us here on Civilly Speaking. You do a great job. Nice job, Sean. <laughs>